Hey, it's Kathy with Rocky Retirement. And as promised, today's Friday, and so you'll be getting to listen to Henry Shapiro's Retired Excited. I know you're just going to love this as much as I do. And don't forget, you can still listen to Rocky Retirement, where I'm the host, and those shows are released on Mondays. Welcome to the Retired Excited Podcast. Retired Excited, the show where we give retired and want-to-be-retired folk a look at how great retired life can be. Here we talk to men and women who are happily retired and loving their life. Together, we will delve into what retired happiness really looks like and how anyone can achieve it. Here is your host, Henry Shapiro. Hey folks, Henry here at Retired Excited, the show providing inspiration for people who are nearly retired, newly retired, or say they're never going to retire. Here we talk to retired people doing things that make them happy, things from stamp collecting to cruising, from dancing to touring the world on a motorbike. We talk to everyday retired people who are living the life they want, and we talk to a few professionals to get expert advice, and I chip in with some of my own experiences. Well, hi there, everybody. It's Henry with Retired Excited. Today, we're going to be talking to a couple who I think are exceptional people. Their names are Jenny and Stan Brown. Now, Stan, for most of his professional life, has been a self-employed electrical contractor, and Jenny is a nurse, and they live on a deer farm. They've run the deer farm alongside their professions for many, many years. I started by spending some time talking about their life before retirement. The reason I spoke to Stan about that was because, like lots and lots of us, things haven't always gone smooth for them. But that got patched up, and he talks a little bit about that. When I first got to the farm, I sat down, had a cup of tea with Stan, and Jenny was out doing something. As we progressed, Jenny started clattering about the kitchen, and you can hear that in the background, but that's what happens when you're doing live interviews. I wasn't going to interview Jenny at first, but... She sort of got a bit involved, and as I got towards the end of the interview with Stan, he said, talk to Jenny, and I'm really, really glad I did, because she told me about the same instances, the same things as Stan did, but from a different point of view. In some cases, a very very different point of view, and it's worth comparing what the two of them said. Stan, uh, as I said, he runs a deer farm, and he was a hunter, and I think that's probably what led him into being interested in farming deer. Now, what's interesting is that First Jenny, but then later Stan, used their skills, their existing professional skills to help other people. You'll hear that what they did was Jenny first went overseas as a volunteer abroad. They went to Mongolia and she was able to use her nursing skills in an orphanage there. And Stan followed along. Best they tell a story rather than me. I started out greeting Stan, asking him how he was, and then indicating that it had taken me just about three hours to from my house to get to where he was up country and ask him where the hell he lived. Well, you're a couple of hundred k's from Melbourne on the Maroondah Highway, which leads to Mansfield and Mount Buller and the ski, ski fields. And it's a place we came to because of a, a number of reasons. My wife and I parted company. We eventually decided to get back together. Mm-hmm. And the kids didn't want to Has go. Has that been a good move? 
Yeah, well, we've been back together for 25 years or oh, something, well, so yeah, it's not, not too bad. bad. Not a bad move. I'm not sure it was 100%, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's just not too bad. Well, I wanted to talk to Stan today, listeners, because he's got a profession, he's a farmer, and he's helped a lot of people. And it's the last one I wanted to talk to about, talk about really in depth, but let's have a, a listen to how Stan finished up here on the farm. Well, we, we had a, a small farm at Taggarty, when we got back together, we came, decided on, on Merton because of its location, and we bought this place quite cheaply. Was it a deer farm when you got here? No. It was owned by a local, or son of a local. Uh, he and his brother inherited quite a lot of land in the area and, yeah, and, <laughs> and drank it away. Uh, gradually, the farm was chopped up and chopped up until it was all sold. All right, well, so you're here on the farm. Initially, it wasn't... Uh your main focus, what, what were you doing? What was well, your Well, I'm an electrical contractor by trade. It took me quite a while to get into the job here. I went over, went over near uh, Mildura Way driving a huge wheel digger in the, in the desert for pipelines for something to do and make a bit of money. And, and then we just gradually, we had the deer and the deer were worth, when we came here, the deer were worth nothing. The price was terrible. And my bank, bank manager said, well, you still owe us the money. <laughs> but he, he had service a lot of deer farmers and okay. made, he said, his comment was, have you got a place where you can put a paddock where you don't have to look at them? I went, yeah. He said, well, put a fence up and put them there. So we did. Arguably, it's probably the best move we made because we put them there. They just gradually grew in numbers. Well, then let's move on from there. What's your main focus now? What do you really enjoy now? I still like the deer farm. I enjoy that. And I think... Yeah. I think that helps me keep young. People often say, oh, you don't look nearly 70. Well, as far as the farm's concerned, what's the best thing about being on the farm? I think I've got to tell you folks I that Jen is sniggering in the background here. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a, uh, the fact that I don't have neighbours. Uh, I like to look out over the place and the neighbours' place. Even when I'm working with you, I still love that room to move. People who are not farmers don't recognise, and I found this, is that it's a really creative enterprise. You've got to be thinking all the time yeah. and working out how to yeah. do stuff. And yeah. Even my accountant said that to me yesterday when I was chatting. She said, well, what would you do? I said, I don't know. And she said, well, that'll shorten your life. She said, <laughs> yes. and my accountant, by the way, is probably 75, 76. She said, what else would I do? I enjoy doing it, and it keeps me active. That's the perfect segue into what I want to talk to you about. Yeah. No. So let's talk about the things that you've been doing for other people. You volunteered to work overseas. Well, my wife decided in her wisdom after the children were gone that she'd put in for a job as a volunteer for Australian Volunteers. And she got a placement in Mongolia. Yours truly wouldn't go. I just wouldn't go. And after living here for about six months, five and a half months by myself, I was starting to A, get a bit lonely. And Australian Volunteers had constantly said to me that if I wanted to go and stay with Jen in Mongolia, they would send me. And eventually, after about five and a half months, I weakened and said, I'll go. And Jen had already been there for six months or so. I went over just as a spouse. I didn't have a job. But the orphanage where Jen worked put me to work from day one. So, so I drove the bus for them and did a lot of the maintenance and all that sort of stuff. And what was Jen doing? Jen was, Jen was working as basically the health officer at the orphanage. And uh, her job was to, to try to maintain the health of the children. Yeah, yeah, she's a nurse. 
And as I said, I, they just gave me all the manual jobs around the place and I took them Did on. Did you enjoy anyway. it? Enjoy doing that? Yeah, yeah, I loved it. And I, I didn't want to go to Mongolia, but they dragged me kicking and screaming out of the place because I didn't want to go. You didn't want to leave? I didn't want to leave. Okay. And I went back, I self-funded and went back a year later for a while. What was it about the place that you loved? The people, the countryside. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like living in the Wild West. The larger majority of Mongolia is still are nomads. Uh, and they travel all over the country. They, they move four times a year mm-hmm. for, to suit the seasons for their animals. There's no fences in Mongolia at all. They travel around all year. The scenery is great. Their summers are to die for. Their winters are not quite so good. The day we left to come home from Mongolia, it was minus 35 the day we left. I can tell you love it. <laughs> the way you're talking about it, you love it. Yeah, I, I mm-hmm. did. And, uh, it was a great experience, mm. one that I thought I'd never have because I just didn't want to go. <laughs> Is it something that folks brought up in Australia or Westerners anyhow, anybody could do that or have you got to be a special sort of person? I, th- I think anyone could do it providing they're, they're willing to melt into the, into the country of their choice that they go to. My interpreter once said to me, Stanley, if you, if you want to fit into Mongolia and you act like a Mongol and they'll treat you like a Mongol, and I did, and it was the best thing I ever did. Mm-hmm. Australian volunteers, managers couldn't understand how, in that short space of time, I'd been out wolf hunting with the Prime Minister, I'd been fishing here, doing this, doing that. And it's because I, I took notice of what Arjun said and become a Mongol. Drove like a Mongol, acted like a Mongol, drank like a Mongol, and for that, I fitted in. They're pretty good drinkers, I think, aren't they? Uh, they drink a lot of vodka. They do have another alcoholic drink there, it's called Airag, and it's fermented horse milk. Not everyone likes it, Um, my wife certainly didn't. I developed a bit of a taste for it. It's about equal to uh, uh, a bit bit stronger than our light beer, and they drink a lot of it. It's, yeah, you look look in the barrel and think, oh, do I want to drink that? But it's okay, and once again, it's it's one of those things that um, I found, when you go to the to a place like that, if you, if you blend into their society, they want to feed you and they want to give you something to drink. Like the, you'll get to a camp and they'll offer you a cup of tea, but the cup of tea is salty, they put salt in it. That takes a bit of getting used to that, the salt, but uh, you get used to it. But the other thing is, if, if you happily accept what the way, their way of life, they treat you totally different than if you don't. And yeah. The one thing that we noticed when we were there, it was the year of the volunteers, and there was a lot of Australian volunteers in Mongolia at the time, and a lot of them couldn't hack it and they went home. So how, how does the organisation, how does Australian volunteers cope with that if somebody... Uh, I think, think they're disappointed, but it's part of the deal. Let's um, just move on to Australian volunteers for a second. You went to Mongolia and you followed Jen over there. Where else could people go? What, what sort of countries oh, do they send got, people to? They've got places, the Solomons, uh, Fiji, Indonesia, Vietnam. So a number of many third world countries. Yeah, there's there, quite there, a lot. There. We came home and everything ticked along for a while and then I used to check their website every now and then all of a sudden there was a lot of tradies jobs come on the website. And one was teaching, uh, yeah, and one was a, a, a teacher in the Solomons. I've taught apprentices, but I had no experience as a teacher. And I spoke to a guy who had taken a job over there as a, a carpenter teacher. So I put in for the job and I got it straight away. 
And then uh, that was okay, and I was all set to go to the Solomons, and then they rang me up a little while later and said, look, we've, we've got a problem. There's a job in, in, uh, in Jakarta at a hospital. They need a, an electrical uh, person to teach about the running and maintenance of the hospital electricals. So I said, oh, all right, okay, if that's what you want me to go. And then they rang me up about three weeks. They said, oh, we've got a problem. I said, what the bloody hell's the problem this time? I said, oh, you know how you said you didn't want to do maintenance of heart monitors and all that sort of stuff because it was too technical? I said, yeah. And they said, well, we actually have a bloke who's applied for a job in East Timor who's a technician. What do you think? I said, well, if I was half smart, Ian, sitting in your seat, I'd send him to Indonesia and I'd send Stan Brown to East Timor. So they then sent this guy to Indonesia. It didn't work out, but yours truly went to, uh, went to East Timor. I was managing a, a workshop that did uh, mechanical electrical work and I was actually working at this place on behalf of Australian volunteers, but for a guy, a doctor from Sydney who sponsored the place. Unusually, the, the job required me to be not only the manager, the financial manager and the teacher and the man who runs the joint, which Australian volunteers weren't, are not very keen on ha you handling any money, but it was the only way in which we could do the job. So I did, and, the, and the, even now, uh, it was only a couple of months ago, the workshop rang me up to say hi and how are you, and the business So they've good. maintained contact, that's fair. Oh, yeah, they, they, that's good they ring every now and then. And, uh, so the, the people who go and volunteer abroad, mm. do you need to have uh, a profession or a trade, or can regular folks, you know, just with regular jobs, go? They usually suggest different uh, trades or skills or professions. Jen would never have much trouble in getting a placement even now because quite often the health is uh, the health areas is a lot yeah. a lot of advertising. Yeah. Um, and you mentioned their website. No, I had a look at their website before I came. Yeah. When you look at the website, there's a whole list there of places to go oh, yeah. and yeah. what they need. So yeah. anyone who's interested could really yeah. just have a look and yeah. see if they fit the bill. Well, uh, the job in East Timor, I got it because of the electrical side of it. Australian volunteers didn't realise that, uh, that I would have to be the CEO of the workshop. That's the way it worked out. But I'd run my own business for 35 years or more, so it wasn't a major step. I took over for another, from another Australian who, had, uh, who worked there for money and he'd made a bit of a mess of it. We came to uh, a serious altercation with him at one stage. And I, but I, I floated along with the, the boys at the workshop and all I did was I guided them how to manage the money, how to make profit. Like they didn't even know what the word profit meant. Uh, until I explained it to the young trainee manager, and now they're, they're kicking goals. It's going good. It's, yeah, it's, fantastic. Uh, yeah. Australian volunteers were never happy with the, the position that I had in regards to the fact that I was in total control of, of everything from the money down. Hmm. But it's the only way that it would work. It's worked out now. And yeah. uh, it's, I, left, I was offered, actually, another job while, whilst I was there from Australian volunteers in uh, Nambia, in Africa, two jobs to go over there and set up two workshops in six months and I could stay if I wanted to or go home. Can I ask you the two places you've been now what's the what's the best thing for you personally what's been the best thing coming out of that? Um, I think outside the fact that if you feel as though you've been successful living in a different culture is quite a different experience and, and 
And I think if you, you learn to live in their culture and be like them, it's a bit of a game changer. Mm. And uh, you come away with some benefits in that area because you're a different person, Yeah, basically. That's, so That's great. I, can I move on then to Australian Volunteers? And I know there are other organisations that, uh, that do a similar thing. Let's just talk about the organisation of this for a second. How young or old do you have to be to go? <laughs> um, well, I've seen volunteers in their 20s. And if we're talking about retired folks. So say yep. you're 55, 60, you're uh, still wanted? Well, when I went to a, a, a briefing at Australian Volunteers, there was a guy there who was older than me. So he probably was, at that stage, was 66 or 7. He, had, he was what they called a re, repeat offender. <laughs> he'd, he'd put in for numerous jobs, usually in New Guinea, and uh, he uh, had basically not much in the way of skills, except he was pretty handy with his house, with his hands. Very creative at, at uh, establishing bores. Made pumps out of things like Nescafe can lids and <laughs> all sorts of stuff like that. And he was a fairly old gentleman, and... Mm. Uh, Guy not, that not, I, not old by our standards now. Well, not old by my standards, <laughs> I suppose, but uh, an older man. Uh, mm -hmm. And he'd done that, I think that was his sixth. So it's not only a possibility, it's a reality for folks yeah. who are yeah. looking forward to retirement, yeah. or perhaps they've just retired yeah. and they can go and help some people overseas and really make a contribution to the world. Yeah, in I think that you're just passing on your skills. Mm. Um, and I think some people think they're going to go over there and change the world, and that's the wrong attitude. It is the wrong attitude. You go there to empower them with some skills that will help them. You, you don't go there to try to change them. That won't work. If we talk about the logistics of this, uh, things like how do you get there, do you get paid, can your wife and children go, etc., etc. So when you volunteer, do you get paid to, to go? You get similar money to what the, the locals get. When we went to Mongolia, Jen got paid $50 a month from the orphanage. I got paid $50 Australian from Australian volunteers. When we went to Timor, it was a totally different ballgame. They never would tell us why, but we were paid significantly more money in East Timor than what we did in Mongolia. A lot of it, I think, had to do with the American dollar, and we were paid a reasonable amount of money. Not, not great amounts, but reasonable. Um, they, they pay for your, uh, your accommodation. Um, what about your fare to get there? How... They they pay for uh, your living expenses. Uh, you don't they don't just drop you off in the country with a handful of dollars and go go for it. They pay your airfare, your insurance. Uh, you so should... by, by Western standards, once you get there, it's really subsistence living almost. Oh, it is. It is. Yeah, yeah, it is. And you've got to be the sort of personality yeah. who can cope with that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Jen and I comfortably lived in East Timor, in uh, Mongolia, I should say. A lot of the younger ones struggled. Financially, they found it not enough money to live, but that's because they, they didn't cook for themselves. They wanted to go out all the time and eat, and all, you know, all their meals out and all that sort of stuff. So it relies on your expectations. Yeah. Yeah. When we were there, the American dollar rose heavily against the Australian dollar, and the volunteers were really complaining, a lot of the younger ones, and I started to realise there was a problem. I contacted Australian volunteers and said, hey, you've got to look at the dollar, like, we're in trouble there. Credit to them, they changed it and gave us a bit more money to compensate for the dollar. We lived quite handsomely because uh, we, uh, Jen had a, a nice apartment when I got there by, by Mongol standards. 
It was fully furnished, had TV, uh, all that sort of stuff. You had water when the water ran, sometimes it didn't. But... So what about negatives? Was there any negatives or any disasters while you were there? I didn't feel so. The negatives? No. 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 Okay. I'd just taken up fly fishing the year before. I landed in a country that had heaps of rivers with lots of trout, had lots of deer to hunt, had wolves to hunt, vodka to drink, the whole thing. <laughs> I just, I was in heaven. You make it sound like heaven, yes. It was, yeah. I fell into that area very quickly. I, the, down, the downside, of it, I guess, is which will always stick with you, be it Mongolia or Timor, is the, a lot of the poverty that they live in. It's, it's hard to explain to people just how bad it is. Uh, you show them photos and they look down there. But to actually live in it is a totally different ballgame. And, uh, and some people can't do that. They just can't, can't survive in that situation. And uh, we lived in, in the uh, edge of uh, UB, which is Alambada, the capital of Mongolia. And the orphanage was in the middle of a slum suburb on the other side of the river on the way to the airport. And when I say slum, I tell you, it's slum. I was just blown away when I first got there. I just wanted to go home. I thought, this is just, I don't know whether I can handle this. And some people can't handle it straight away. And I did, but I, I had a wife there, so I stayed there. And after a few weeks of going to the orphanage, and then I busied myself because the water system hadn't worked for two or three years. So although I'm not a plumber, I, I'm a farmer, so you have to know all about everything. So I rebuilt all their water system and made it work. And I built rooms on the orphanage, um, drove the bus to the hospitals and doctors for the kids and all that sort of stuff. So, so the takeaway in some respect is that you get a really genuine, heartfelt uh, idea of how other people are living. And you, you can appreciate then how we are here in Australia. Oh, yeah, yeah. And, and we used to go to the place called the Step Inn, which was at the British Embassy on Friday night. It was, it was a boozer, that's all it was. We went up there and drank beer. And I, I had a fair share of uh, heated conversations with people that were there, Europeans that were there, that, that weren't living in that situation and, uh, and felt it was degrading and, uh, and very poor and they wouldn't fit in at all. It was all about the dollars for them. The more I got into the orphanage and living there, the worse I got at that. Because you're identifying with the locals. Yeah, and, yeah, I, had, and uh, I had no hesitation of, of hitting out. We, we actually had a, a group of guys there who were paid workers. I can't remember what they were. There was about five of them. And I had some heated conversations with them. And in the end, I said, well, come out of the orphanage. If you, that, you think you know that much, you come out of the orphanage. And I'll show you what it really is like. And there was a guy there who had been to the orphanage. He came out one day and he said to these guys, just give him the money, don't bother going. So they donated money to the orphanage on his say-so that they would not be able to handle what they were going to see. You know, we had visits from probably more Americans than anyone else and they come to the orphanage in, in reasonable numbers and they were always very generous and donated, uh, they, they donated money or gifts, or some of them actually went back to America and, and uh, with a donation system that they donated continuously every month, a few Fantastic. dollars here, a few dollars there. Yeah, yeah. Um, if people are considering this, they think, oh, well, that's something I can do, that's a worthwhile thing to do in life after I'm retired. Hmm. Would you recommend it to them? Oh, for sure. For I, sure. I believe nearly every Australian kid should be sent there at the age of 18 just to remind them what the rest of the world might be like. I'd recommend it to anyone.
they need in their briefings they need to be taught of what to expect and how their life will change because it does change your life a lot but it's it's an experience I'd recommend to anyone it's, if uh, people want to find out more about it how do they do that um, Australian volunteers is a good good example to talk to them other uh, organizations that are around the world VSOs and a few of those people the, the thing they have to understand is is uh, that you will not be living like a European you will not it simply doesn't happen mm. if you do you might as well stay home are there any books or websites well there's there's the Australian volunteers website but um, uh, I, is there any way of contacting people who have been, such as yourself, so oh, they can get first-hand yeah, information? Australian Volunteers do have talks on it from okay. volunteers who have been overseas. They give they give talks on that. Um, yeah, they they have uh, on their website quite often. They'll have a return volunteers giving a talk on it, been at Solomon's or Africa or wherever. Mm-hmm. The only thing I found or find these days. The volunteers, because they're paid by Oz, Oz pay them, um, it also is a bit political. Like, we hardly send any volunteers to South America. We don't send them into certain countries. Okay. Because it's not in our interests. That's something I hadn't, hadn't even entered my mind. That mm, it's, uh, yeah. yeah. So you'll find that the countries they send people into, East Timor, the Solomons, Fiji, any of that sort of Pacific countries parts of Africa. It's it's a political thing. And AusAid, who sponsor Australian volunteers, stipulate this where the areas where you send them. When we were in Mongolia, Mongolia had only been a separate uh, country for, from uh, Russia for a number of years. There's a story I tell, it's about the Prime Minister I went out wolf hunting with and a uh, hell of a nice guy. He was deposed because he was too honest. He was sacked because he was too honest. His own party sacked him. Yeah, it's, it's, it's different. And uh, the one thing you need to do is not get involved in political or religious uh, situations. The orphanage was run by a, a, an Australian woman, an Ananda Maganan. Yeah, it's a long and involved story, but she found God in, in India and went to, went to Mongolia. Mongolia and started taking a few people off the girls off the street and suddenly wound up meeting us. Mongolian guy who helped us set up the orphanage and for folks who are thinking about this or from what we've been talking about here what would you say what's the takeaway message from from you as far as working overseas I would I would probably say that it's a great experience if you want to immerse yourself in another culture and you have to to be successful you, you need it's like our juniors to say Stanley you drive like Mongol you think like Mongol you will be Mongol and you have to be prepared to go to into that zone. If you feel that you can't, if your standards are, would hold you back, then I seriously doubt that you'd make a good volunteer. Here you are, you're back on the farm, yeah. your concentration is on the farm, and uh, so looking forward for the next few years, what, what are you looking forward to? A bit more of what I've got now, I guess. Okay. Uh, if the right job come up with Australian volunteers, I'd, You'd do it again? I'd do it again. You'd I'd do consider it again. doing it. You, you can do another volunteer over there. So I've got Jen, Stan's wife, with me to give her view of what was going on overseas and whether she enjoyed it, whether she got anything out of it. Jen, tell us about your experiences over there. 
Well, I originally went to outer Mongolia because um, I'd always wanted to go as a volunteer um, when the children were little. A friend of mine, a work colleague, had gone to the Kiribati Islands with her family for two years and lived over there and Stan was adamant he was never going to go and then the boys went to Melbourne, went to uni, went overseas and um, there was this job that came up in outer Mongolia and it was two years after I'd had a really major accident and was in hospital for six months. And um, That was a horse riding, horse riding accident, wasn't yeah, it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. So um, Stan thought that I'd forgotten all about going overseas and going volunteering and I, this girl at work said, oh, she saw this job advertised and I said, oh, I'm going to apply for it. And when I told him, he was... Not a happy camper, but anyway. So anyway, I went and had a um, job interview and I went and it was uh, 35 plus when I left Melbourne and minus 35 when I arrived in Ulaanbaatar. Your profession is is a nurse. I'm a general trained nurse, a midwife and a maternal and child health nurse. So so was that the requirement for the job that you were looking at? Yeah, pretty much. I had to have nursing qualifications to go training the uh, workers at the orphanage and looking after the health of the children and that was a bit of an experience because you would never go to a Mongolian hospital if you were sick. It was like stepping back into the 1930s. So I found this really great clinic um, run by the South Korean doctors called the Yonsai Clinic and uh, they volunteer their time and so I took all the children to see a Dr Khan at the Yongsai Clinic and um, at least that was good but you know you wouldn't take the children back to the orphanage with intravenous strips or medication because the workers just would they'd give it to them sometimes and not give it to them other times and didn't see the need for that so our flat in Ulaanbaatar was often chock-a-block babies and toddlers (laughs) so yeah so that was good um are there any any stories you can tell me uh, of things that happened at the at the uh, at the orphanage? orphanage yes. Yeah, I was like doing a training exercise on how to um, do stuff with the workers, and they would sit there and half listen and half not listen. And the interpreter uh, Chuggy Chongsogmai, her name was, but we called her Chuggy. She, um, I would say something quite short and simple with four or five words, and it would be a whole sentence and I said what did you say to them? She goes oh no I just tell them that. I said oh okay and then it didn't ever seem to get through so that was pretty frustrating but it was pretty funny because I was teaching them how to um, percuss someone's chest to get the um, mucus out to bang Mm -hmm. the chest and I came in one day and all the little toddlers were sitting down with whatever dolls they had with the dolls over their knee banging their backs and I just laughed at that. I thought that's pretty funny. Something sunk in. Yeah, good. Yeah. yeah, so that was good. And um, another time we took a baby to the clinic and it had to have an intravenous and it was um, you know, minus 20 and we got out of the clinic and as soon as we left the uh, heat of the Yonsai clinic we walked out and... Um, the fluid froze in the IV line. <laughs> so I was walking across the street. Stan was hailing a taxi because he didn't have the van for some unknown reason. I have no idea why. And um, I was sucking on the IV tube to melt the fluid <laughs> so that it just could get into the baby. So that was um, that was pretty 
pretty funny. What were your general impressions? The um, oh, they were very, very poor. They had no running water. They employed a guy overnight to stoke the fire for, to keep the wall heaters going, and sometimes he'd go to sleep and you'd go in in the morning and all the kids were freezing and the ice mm. would come through the concrete walls and... You know, so that was, it was pretty tragic and they'd, um, they'd all come to you when you were eating your meal because you would eat the same as them. Mm. And, uh, you know, you'd have a spoonful for you and a spoonful for a toddler because they'd all stand around you like little birds <laughs> with their mouths open and that was, uh, fraught with a few problems because then I'd hepatitis A, which was, um, you know, I kept looking at myself in the mirror thinking I was a bit tired and I thought, yellow and then one day Stan said to me you're more than yellow Jen you're a bit orange <laughs> so anyway <laughs> went to the um, nice caring husband yeah so I went to the clinic um the clinic that Australian Volunteers in Internationals um recommend you to go it's a, a UN doctor and um she said oh you've got hepatitis A because some um, and then because before I went I went to the toilet and my urine was like coca-cola and I thought oh I've got hepatitis A <laughs> So, you know, you don't, you don't die from hepatitis A. You get pretty sick. And because we were paid, we could eat, you know, reasonable food. So, you know, I mean, if the Mongols got it out on the step and they got it really badly, and if it was associated with vomiting and diarrhea, they'd probably die because, you know, mm. we went on a trip up horse riding after that happened for seven days. And, um, Oh, it was awful. I mean, the horse ride was great, but we got to um, Rensselaer and uh, we had to get back to Moorin, which was the airport. And we went in a truck, and it took us 17 hours to do 112 kilometres. Oh, could have walked there. It was the worst experience of my life. <laughs> it was horrible. You're putting people off. Didn't yeah, you? but you know that that was fine. I mean, but it's a it's an if you go there from the pe- from the what people... you're saying, from what Stan was saying. If you go there expecting an adventure, yeah. expecting... Yeah. Then the people are, are generous, like, that nice that we came and we, we had to stop. The truck driver just pulled in at a gear camp, and it was, like, 2 o'clock in the morning, and they all got out of bed and they made us tea, and then the old boy got out of his bed and made me sleep in his bed. So, you know, they're they're really friendly. And um, sometimes it's quite frustrating because, you know, like... Um, I used to say to Ajun sometimes when they wouldn't listen to me, he said, oh, but Jenny, Mongolian people, very proud people. And I said, well, you know, Ajun, I said, there's a very fine line between stubborn and pride. <laughs> and he laughed. But, you know, I mean, people people are stubborn or pr- proud of what they do and they have to live that way because of the circumstances that yes. they're in. Yes. So I think if you try and go over there and change everything about them, you might as well not even go. You immerse yourself in their culture and, um, you know, you work with what, what they live with and then you see very good reasons for what they do. And it was the same in Timor. You know, there's many good reasons why they don't take their babies down to Dili from Same because, you know, Same is on the southern side of Timor and it's only 132 kilometres, but it takes five hours mm-hmm. to drive there because the roads are so bad. There's no social welfare system in Timor. If um, you took a baby to Dili, it would possibly die anyway. Then the Timorese would have to find somewhere to live and pay for it themselves. They would have to transport the dead baby back to Same 
usually in the back of a truck because they can't afford anything else or an overcrowded bus, then they have to pay for the funeral. So, you know, it worried me a lot when a lot of little babies were born and they were critical, and in Australia you would save them, but I had to listen to Mana Justa and um, a lot of the other girls at, and they said, uh, Mana Jenny, God, maybe this one just go to God this time. Yes, yes. And um, that that bothered me. That's but, hard, isn't it? You know, it's hard there by was, our culture. Yeah, there was one baby that clearly wasn't going to go to God. He was just really jaundiced and they didn't quite get the concept of putting them under phototherapy, which is what you would do in Australia, which is pretty simple, non-invasive, but, and then the baby wouldn't feed because it was sleepy, and then, of course, they labelled the mother a bad mother because she wouldn't feed the baby, and the baby was a bad baby because it wasn't feed, and in the end, I I actually spat the dummy a bit, and I um, went down to the um, unpolled police, the UN police, and I said to the Jordanian guy that was the commander, I said, can you get a... Um, a uh, UN chopper to take this baby out. He goes, oh, we don't usually do that. And I said, well, you come into the clinic and you have a look at this baby. And I said, and you know why I want a chopper. Anyway, he came and he went, oh, oh okay, okay. And uh, by the time we left and we got back, it was 3.30. And then he said to me, oh, I've rung the UN um, helicopter. He said, but they can't come because they don't fly after four o'clock in the afternoon. So I spat it and I said well don't and I swore at him I said the F word I said well don't effing worry I said because it'll be dead in the morning I said thanks for your help and I walked out I was furious so anyway I was walking up the road walking home sweating and sweating about what I was going to do so I rang up this Scottish doctor at the Australian and New Zealand Army barracks in Dilly because I knew them and um, he said to me Oh, give me a condition of the baby. And I said, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, oh, doesn't sound good, does it? And I said, no. And he said, we'll have a black hawk there in 20 minutes. ETA, blah, blah, blah. And I said, good. Thank you very much. <laughs> so that was amazing. I tell you, I said to Stan, that's how I want to fly all the time. 20 minutes it took. Fantastic. Yeah. So that so, was a... And, and that baby lived, came home, everyone was happy, but... You know, you wouldn't do that unless the child was no. critical. But the, all the others, you have to sort of go, hmm. But sometimes I'd come home from work and I'd say to Stan, Stan would say, how was your day? And I'd go, oh, either great or I just want to bash my head <laughs> through this concrete wall. Yeah. <laughs> Once again, it's your expectations and the standards we have here are yeah. so different. Yeah. Because even the hospital had no running water, no electricity. You wanted to find running water, you had to walk out the road 200 metres up the road to a tap to get it. So, so with all that, with yeah. all those experiences and you heard, you were listening to yeah. what Stan had to say, would you go back? Oh, yeah, yeah. I didn't like the mosquitoes. <laughs> that was the worst. So I covered my body with some um, DEET, which God knows probably 10 years down the track I'll end up with some terrible disease, but I didn't get malaria, so that was fine. Yeah, no, it was great. Terrific. Kids are great, people are great. What a fabulous story. Did that touch your heart? It certainly did for me. You can see why I consider them to be extraordinary people. If you think that Stan's interview ended a little bit abruptly, it did because I started to sign off the conversation and he went into a whole second conversation about somewhere else he'd been. That was just too much, but he had a brilliant 
second posting some to, uh, to a different country and loved that as well, was able to add value to the people there and to the community he was in. And it was a whole new story there, but it was just too much to put on this, uh, on this interview because it would have gone on for another hour. You can see that the support that they were able to give the Mongolian community worked both ways, didn't it? They came back different people. They came back with a better appreciation of a different culture, how the people over there lived, and the difference between their lives and our lives. It's a great example also of how you can change your ideas as you go along. Stan really didn't want to go, but then he, he felt lonely, he said, and he was being prompted to go by the volunteer organisation, and he went, and when he was there, he loved it. So you don't need to be locked into your preconceptions of things, and he was certainly locked in to start off with, and he found he was wrong. You need to be open to new experiences. My attitude to all these things is, well, what can happen? You're having an adventure? It's interesting the difference between how Stan and Jen told their story. Stan talked about the mechanics of getting over there and what happened and so on and so on. Whereas Jen told stories about the people. She told stories which were happy, stories which were sad, fulfilling, and they're filled with empathy for the people over there. I think she was brilliant. I'm very, very pleased that I got to talk to her as well. If this is of any interest to you, what you should do is get onto your internet and Google Australian Volunteers. You'll find two or three organisations there, and if you have a look at their websites, they give all the details of the places they go, the sort of tasks that are available for Australians to do, how long they are, and so on and so on. So do that. Google Australian Volunteers. It's been a great conversation. Please leave comments on the website of your attitude to going overseas, your attitude to different cultures. If you want to contact me directly, as always, henry at retiredexcited.com. And of course, the, the website is retiredexcited.com. So thanks very much for listening to this. It's been a longer session than normal, but well, well worthwhile, I think. So thank you all. I'll see you next time. Cheers. I will have to to give that a go for sure. Um, Ian, that was like terrific. That was interesting. What a good idea. I wanted to thank you again for listening to the Rocky Retirement Show. If you're a new listener, a good place to start is episode 116. This explains the six pillars of retirement lifestyle and our general philosophy. Episodes 1 through 236 can be thought of as an encyclopedia. These are topics that may or may not be interesting to you. You can listen to the ones that you're interested in and forget the rest until the issue becomes an issue for you. And that's okay. I actually don't recommend starting with episode one and working through until the most recent. That's actually not how the show was designed. 
Of course, if you want to do that so you can see how the show changed over time, you're welcome to. Now, starting in August, actually August 31st of 2020, we changed the format of the show. The monthly episodes starting with 237 follow a real retiree from her pre-announcement through her first year of retirement. There might be bonus episodes, but we're committed to monthly. If you've enjoyed any of our past shows or the show that you've just listened to and you want to support us, you can do so in any of the four ways. One, share this episode with a friend or family member who needs to hear it. This is the most important way that people find us. Since our audience is typically older, we grow by having our listeners share our episodes with others. Two, subscribe to or follow the show using whatever podcast catcher you're listening on right now. Now, if you're listening on your computer, you can listen on your smartphone by going to Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Podcast Addict, iHeartRadio, Spotify. I mean, I believe on all of them. If you can't find us on the podcast catcher that you'd like to use, send us a note on the website at rockyourretirement.com and we'll make sure that we get on your favorite podcast app. But basically, what you do is you download the app and then you search for the show and when you find it, you'll hit subscribe. Make sure it's the Rock Your Retirement Show and that you hear my voice when you listen. Um, actually, there were some episodes where Henry Shapiro was a guest. Uh, we, we actually downloaded some of his episodes. So if you hear him, it's probably still the, the same show. There were maybe 34 or 35 episodes back in the beginning that we hosted on our show uh, when he decided to leave podcasting. Number three, how you can support us is by leaving a review. Whatever podcast app you're listening to normally has the option of leaving a review, either a written review saying how great the show is or just with stars. Five stars is typically the best. And of course, we're shooting for those five-star reviews. And if you tell us why you like the show, what you liked about it, it's actually easier for other people to understand what the show's about. A lot of people, when they find our show, they think it's about money. And of course, by now, you know that it's not. Number four, if you'd like to support us financially, of course, we're always appreciative of that. Just go to rockyourretirement.com support, and it will take you to our page where you can support us financially. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on Rock Your Retirement. Bye.